Welcome back to History Plus True Crime Uncovered, a new podcast series all about historical stories, people, and places. Disclaimer, some content in this episode may be sensitive to some listeners. Discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. Since the last two episodes have been based on true crime stories, I wanted to kind of delve a little bit into some history. One of my favorite periods is the Tudors era. Named for the start of a dynasty by Henry VII. Today, I am going to talk about the love affair between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn, the younger daughter of Sir Thomas Boleyn and Elizabeth Howard, was from the outset a political animal. She spent her teenage years in France in the train of Queen Mary Tudor, the younger sister of Henry VIII. Sir Thomas had sent both of his daughters there in the hopes that they would gain and polish the sophistication that would make them irresistible to a king. Sir Thomas would never exactly be father of the year, but the scheming and ambitious courtier did aim achieve his aim. At Francois I notoriously licentious court and developed her taste for all things French, the language, the fashions, the music. She perfected the art of flirtation. Her black eyes expertly conveyed an entire gamut of emotions. Anne was not a conventional beauty like her sister Mary. She was of middling stature and her features were angular and fine, though her mouth was considered wide. Her complexion was sallow. Her bosom was not much raised, according to the Venetian ambassador, (laughs) who evidently got close enough to evaluate it. And her hair was a brownish auburn that cascaded past her slim hips. Anne's detractors delighted in depicting her as deformed with warts and moles all over her body, a huge one on her throat. She was described as having a large Adam's apple, but the when an abnormal and unsightly growth or cyst was a gross exaggeration that seemed to grow with the telling of the tale and a sixth finger on her left hand rather than truly endowed with an 11th digit and probably had an extra nail on her left pinky but if she had even been a tenth as malformed as her enemies painted her the persnickety henry with his discerning eye for beauty would have never even looked twice at her let alone moved heaven and earth to wed her Still, it was believed at the time that any physical deformity was an outward manifestation of inner corruption, a superstition that would come back to haunt the dusky beauty. Anne was in other ways very different from her giddy sister. She was smart and brighter, quicker to pick up on nuances, and understood the role for which she was being groomed by her family, and applied herself to perfecting it. In 1521, Anne was recalled to England, possibly because her father wished to arrange her marriage to a wealthy distant cousin. In the meantime, she was placed in Queen Catherine's household. Anne's cosmopolitan sophistication, her facility with languages, and her rapier wit and skilled repertoire made her one of the most popular young women at court, and she soon had several admirers, including the very married poet Thomas Wyatt the Elder, who resided near Anne's parents' Kentish home, Hever Castle. 
1522, her hopes for a marriage to the handsome courtier Henry Percy, the son and heir of the Duke of Northumberland, were destroyed by her father and Cardinal Wolsey, acting on behalf of the Duke. Anne saw the Cardinal as the architect of her misfortune, her broken heart, and worst of all, her chance to marry, not just for love, but for wealth, status, and power, and Anne had always been ambitious. She never forgot this. By the middle of 1525, Anne had utterly captivated the king. She was now in her mid-twenties, and Henry was then 35 years old. In the 17th year of his reign, still vigorous, handsome, and athletically built with just the slightest trace of pudginess. But it was not until the Shrovetide merriment in 1526 that people began to discern the infatuation that Henry had secretly harbored for nearly a year, scarcely daring to confess it to the object herself. During the joust on Shrove Tuesday, 1526, Henry hinted at his feelings by wearing a tabard embroidered with the motto, I, do, I dared not declare a hint to the lady who had captured his fancy. It was not long before Henry asked Anne to be his lover, but her reply took him by surprise. Quote, I would rather lose my life than my honesty, she told the king. Your wife I cannot be, your mistress I will not be. End quote. Where Mary Boleyn had played for love, Anne played for power. She had seen too well that once the king achieved what he desired, it soon lost all luster for him. And Anne Boleyn had no interest in becoming one of Henry's cast-offs. She wanted to be his queen. Just before Christmas 1526, after nearly 18 months' pursuit, Henry wrote to tell Anne that, quote, if it pleases you to do the duty of a true, loyal mistress and friend, and to give yourself body and heart to me, who has been and will be your very loyal servant, I promise that not only the name will be due to you, but also to take you as my sole mistress, casting off all others than yourself out of mind and affection, and to serve you and you alone. End quote. Replying in writing on New Year's Day in 1527, Anne told Henry she would accept him as her betrothed only after the king promised to make her his wife and queen, clarifying her interpretation of his plea to make her, her the sole mistress or of his heart, body, and soul. She sent him a present as well, a handsome diamond and a brooch shaped like a ship in which a lonely damsel appears tempest-tossed. Accompanying the gift was a note that resounded with passion, but also slyly encouraged Henry to continue to press for an annulment from Catherine if he wanted to enjoy her. From that point, Anne must have permitted Henry some certain liberties with her body because of, in one of these letters dating for 1527, Henry wrote, quote, I would you were in my arms or I in yours, for I think it is a long time since we kissed, end quote. Like an infatuated schoolboy, he designed an emblem with their initials AB and HR entwined and the motto, I seek no other. And although Henry's lust was directed toward Anne, throughout his life, his greatest passion was the beginning of a male heir. 
Henry's desire for Anne had convinced him that God was punishing him for marrying his deceased brother Arthur's wife by denying them sons. Getting rid of Catherine was the only way to break the curse. Just before May 1527, the king conceived the idea of divorcing Catherine of Aragon, or rather seeking to have their marriage annulled because they had violated the word of God. Brandishing a Bible, he invoked the verses of Leviticus that made it a sin for a man to lie with his dead brother's wife. But Catherine was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, and her nephew was Charles V, the Spanish king and Holy Roman Emperor. As such, he wielded tremendous power over most of Europe and the papacy as well. Charles would never stand idly by while the English king dared to cast off his aunt. And Catherine had been well coached. Knowing Henry's reliance upon Leviticus, she countered the argument with the insistence that she had never consummated her marriage with Arthur. In other words, they had never had sex. Negotiations to legally divest himself of Catherine and to take Anne as his second wife and queen dragged on from 1527 to 1533, and all the while Anne kept Henry panting after her. Anne and Henry were initially secretive about their affair, but each was too excited about their conquest to remain discreet for long. They appeared together as a couple at a reception hosted at Greenwich Palace to honor the French ambassador on May 15, 1527. Two days later, Cardinal Wolsey opened the secret trial in what would become known as the King's Great Matter, which was the case to prove his right to annul his marriage to Catherine Indeed, the trial was such a secret that Queen Catherine was not even informed of the proceedings. Anne and Henry, however, were waist deep in the matter. They communicated daily by letter when they were not in proximity to each other. As a team, they discussed and dissected the divorce, its political, religious, and social ramifications and consequences. Anne found scholars and theologians to support their theories, pushing Henry harder to think outside of the box. She had developed her humanist leanings in France and endeavored to convert the king to her views. To divorce Catherine, Henry sought a papal dispensation from Clement, the current pope, that would effectively overturn or cancel a previous dispensation to marry her late brother's wife that he had secured from Pope Julius II back when he thought it was a good idea. Now nearly a quarter of a century later, the king was demanding that Clement's dispensation uphold the nullity of his marriage to Catherine for that very reason, because she had been his late brother's wife. But Henry required two separate things from Rome, permission to divorce Catherine and permission to marry Anne. For the second half of the equation, because Henry had slept with Anne's sister Mary, he would need a palpal dispensation to ignore the subject of the first degree of affinity. At the outset of the great matter, both Anne and Henry seemed to believe that the issue would be swiftly resolved. Though they anticipated resistance from Charles V, neither of them had pegged Catherine correctly. Her retreat retreat into her religious devotions had made her stronger rather than more malleable she was not going to go quietly furthermore she loved henry as a queen as a wife and as a woman 
In February 1528, two English envoys set out for Rome with the king's petition, bearing a letter from Cardinal Wolsey, which it must have choked him to write, extolling Anne's many virtues of character. The events of that year reflect Anne's emergence as a reformer, a well-informed, intelligent proponent of the burgeoning Protestant religion. For all her impatient, arrogant, shrewish qualities, the truth is that there would have been no Anglican religion without Anne's scholarly reading of such banned treatises as the works of Martin Luther and her persistent encouragement of Henry to embrace many of Luther's views, breaking with the Church of Rome and becoming the head of the church in England, which would eventually lead to all the British monarchs being the head of the Church of England. But that summer, Henry nearly lost the real reason for sending his envoys to Rome. Anne fell ill from the sweating sickness, a virulent strain of the flu that periodically swept through England. It was similar to the plague. Always cautious about infections, the king removed himself from her company, although he wrote to her from the safety of Hunsden House, passionately avowing, quote, whenever I am, I am yours, end quote, and assuring Anne that he would, quote, willingly bear half end quote, of her illness that she might suffer that much less. In another letter to his favorite convalescent, Henry wrote that he was wishing myself as specifically an evening in my sweetheart's arms, whose pretty duckies I trust shortly to kiss. Duckies was dugs, which is still a slang word for breasts in English. That September, Anne languished at Hever in a semi-exile from the court. Even after she recuperated from her illness, it was not seemly that she be present while Henry shed crocodile tears over the prospect of nullifying his marriage of more than two decades. Believing Anne too imperious, too arrogant, too French, the people detested her. No matter how Henry tried to present it, in their view, he was looking for a way to cast aside a loyal, faithful wife who had become stout, old, and barren in favor of his pert young mistress who was nothing but a hussy. His subject's attitude angered Henry at the beginning of his affair with Anne, but by the time he wished to rid himself of Anne as well, the king relied upon their spite and distaste to stir up public sentiment and destroy her reputation. As the years wore on and the great matter remained unresolved, Anne began to lose patience with the process and with her sovereign. At first, it was probably fun and exciting to devise new ways of simultaneously keeping him at bay and yet utterly in her thrall. Anne's very unobtainability had made her all the more alluring to Henry, but she had grown disgusted with the sympathy Catherine was getting not merely for from the public but at times from the king himself which gave her reason to fear that henry tired of the fight and ambitious about the enemies it was making might from frustration or exhaustion abandon the great matter and return to catherine after all Anne made it very clear to Henry that she might have already sacrificed the best years of her life, reminding the king that children, heirs, were the real reward that lay at the end of the fight. Quote, I have been waiting long 
and might in the meanwhile have contracted some advantageous marriage out of which I might have had issue, which is the greatest consideration in this world. But alas, farewell to my time and use spent to no purpose at all. End quote. And really said this. As ex as temperamental as they were passionate, Henry and Anne quarreled rather often, but she made sure to switch her seductive powers into high gear when they made up so that her royal lover would never forget what it was that he wanted from her. Anne was a demonstrative and uninhibited spitfire, and the king found the cocktail highly exotic. He could deny her nothing. On December 8th, 1529, Anne's father, Thomas Boleyn, was made Earl of Wiltshire. The imperial ambassador, Eustace Chapuis, reported to King Charles V on the festivities. Anne sat by the king's side, taking precedence over the other ladies, occupying the very place allotted to a crown queen. After dinner, there was dancing and carousing, so that it seemed as if nothing were wanting but the priest to give away the nuptial ring and pronounce the blessing. In those days, Anne's presence was conspicuous, and from late 1529 onward, she spent Henry's money lavishly. The privy purse was opened wide to pay for everything from sumptuous fabrics and furs to playing money for her to gamble with. Her influence on the king was exceptional, and no one got Henry's ear or his trust without her say-so. It was becoming common knowledge that Anne Boleyn was the power behind the throne, and those who for years had enjoyed Henry's favor, such as Wolsey, Norfolk, and Henry's brother-in-law, the Duke of Suffolk, Charles Brandon, feared they might be cut out of the picture entirely once Anne became queen. During the spring of 1530, Henry embarked on a royal progress accompanied by the ubiquitous Anne. The imperial ambassador, Chapuis, remarked, The king shows great favor to the lady every day. Very recently, coming from Windsor, he made her ride behind him on a pillion, a most unusual proceeding, and one that has greatly called forth people's attention here. In this report to his sovereign, Charles V, he added that Henry had two men in prison for gossiping about the incident. Anne might not have had the people's hearts, but she had Henry's, and no matter how long it took, she would be his queen and theirs, like it or not. At Christmas time in 1530, Anne commissioned new livery for her attendants, embroidered with the French phrase, that's how it's going to be no matter who grumbles. She thought it was a terrific tongue-in-cheek way to get her message across. But as soon as Henry saw the uniforms, he angrily ordered Anne to dispose of them. Evidently, she had no idea that the model had first been used as a rally cry for one of England's continental enemies, the Burgundians. That same month, Pope Clement demanded that Henry dismiss his mistress from court while the matter of the dispensation remained under judicial review because any children born of their union under such circumstances would be bastards. That directive spurred Henry to press Parliament even harder to agree to the swift resolution of an act that had been under discussion since November 3rd, 1529, granting the king supreme leadership of the church in England. Finally, on February 11th, 1531, following a secret meeting between Thomas Cromwell and the Archbishop 
of Canterbury, the humanist William Warham, Henry was acknowledged supreme head of the church insofar as the law of Christ allows. This disclaimer at the end of the sentence would soon be struck out, leaving Henry the entirely unrestricted head of the church. Anne was ecstatic, as if she had actually gained paradise, a contemporary reported. But as far as Rome and Catherine were concerned, the great matter remained unresolved. The pro- the pro-Catherine faction intended to reveal the real reason for Henry's petition. If it were known that he wanted an annulment just so that he could marry someone else, Henry would never get his way. In 1529, 17 of Henry's love letters to Anne were stolen by an agent of Cardinal Campeggio, one of the palpal legates charged with determining the great matter the letters were brought to the pope and to this day they remain in the vatican's archives though the correspondence was not officially cited by rome as a reason for refusing henry's request they got the message it's important to note that only one letter from anne boleyn like a response letter survives in July of 1531, Henry saw Catherine of Aragon for the last time. The king had demoted her to the rank of Princess Dowager, though for the rest of her life she refused to be addressed as such, declaring that she was still Henry's wife and England's true queen. Referring to Anne as the Scandal of Christendom, Catherine lived out her days in various royal demences, each one draftier than the last, struggling to maintain the modest household Henry, Henry permitted her. Even so, she was always, almost always in arrears. That same month, after a contrempse between arrogant mistress and disgraced queen, Anne was seen wearing the royal jewels. It was a signal to the people of England that she wasn't going anywhere, but it was only a matter of time before they would have to kneel to her. Anne's behavior had gotten out of control. Chapuis reported in one of his dispatches to Charles V, quote, She is becoming more arrogant every day, using words in authority towards the king, of which he has several times complained to the Duke of Norfolk, saying she was not like the queen who never in her life used ill words to him, end quote. In 1532, plans were underway for a continental summit between Henry and Francois I, but for Anne to be able to accompany Henry as his consort at the celebration surrounding the diplomatic mission, she would have to be a person of rank. So on September 1st, Henry bestowed a title on his mistress, creating Anne Marquess of Pembroke, using the male form of address for the title, a common custom in Tudor times. The honor also included five manor houses throughout the realm to add to the pair of manors in Middlesex that Henry had given to Anne earlier that year, and an additional patent setting lands worth £1,000 a year on her, close to $730,000 in today's currency. But even with her new title, they were not married, 
Lady Pembroke would have to meet up with the king in Calais after the official diplomatic mission had been concluded. Still, Anne had made the best of it, and at Francois's court, she was treated like the prodigal daughter. Francois himself gave her an enormous diamond as an official gift, and she had a retinue of English noblewomen at her beck and call that included her sister Mary and a mild-mannered blonde named Jane Seymour. Anne danced the first dance with the French king, a message to everyone in the ballroom that regardless of her official status, she was the first woman of rank from the English court. Henry was so proud of her that he ran about the room pulling off all the masks from the ladies' faces so that everyone could see his lover, partnered by the king of France. Following the festivities, while most of their attendants returned to England, Anne and Henry spent a fortnight in Calais enjoying a romantic idol that resembled a honeymoon rumors abounded that the couple exchanged vows and finally finally and surrendered her, surrendered her body to henry and they made love for the first time since the king's infatuation with her sparked nearly seven years earlier we can only hope that it wasn't a letdown for either lover regardless of whether their coupling was enjoyable it was certainly fruitful for by the end of the first week of December, 1532, when she was about 32 years old, Anne was pregnant. She and Henry were secretly wed on St. Paul's Day, January 25th, 1533. The king lied outright to Dr. Roland Lee, who officiated at their wedding, claiming that he had a document from the Pope, giving him permission to marry again, though he refused to produce it. Actually, Henry was not yet legally divorced according to the Church of Rome, but in his mind he had never been legally married to Catherine, and therefore he was a bachelor and free to wed whomever he chose. By mid-February, the queen-to-be felt the urge to flaunt her condition, announcing in company that she had a fearsome and unquenchable longing to eat apples. Henry remarked that it was a sure sign Anne was pregnant, to which Anne responded that she was sure she was not. A silvery peal of laughter issued from her lips, and she returned to her room without another word. Eyewitnesses were shocked by her lack of discretion. On April 12th, Easter Sunday, Anne prepared for the first time as Queen of England. All the world is astonished at, and even those who take her part do not know whether to laugh or cry. On May 28th, from a gallery in Lambeth Palace, Archbishop Cramner, having reached his formal decision on the great matter, with the assent of the learned divines of the court, that Mary, Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon was null and absolutely void, and contrary to divine law, publicly declared Henry's marriage to Anne good and valid. Anne was now Henry's legal bride, and the child she carried in her womb would be legitimate. But Catherine's daughter, Princess Mary, was declared a bastard and would henceforth be referred to as the Lady Mary. Cramner was about to crown the king's pregnant new wife, but he wasn't altogether comfortable about it. Despite the fact that he and Anne were England's keenest supporters of the reform, as archbishop, he was technically the pope's legate and not the king's servant. Therefore, Cramner felt obligated to threaten Henry with excommunication if the monarch didn't put away Catherine, who was still considered 
herself, Henry's wife, and queen. There could not be two wives and queens. That much was clear. So Henry shoved a history-making law through Parliament called the Act of Restraint of Appeals, which proclaimed England an empire governed by one supreme head and king who answered to no one but God for his actions. It was also made an act of treason to write or speak against his marriage to Anne, and all adult males were compelled to uphold it. Anne's household now numbered 200 retainers in attendance, liviered in her chosen colors of purple and blue, embroidered with the motto, The Most Happy. Preparations then began in earnest for the four-day coronation celebration. At last, Anne Boleyn would receive what had been more than six years in the making. On May 29, 1533, she sailed in state up the Thames from Greenwich in a richly appointed barge, accompanied by a flotilla of 50 other vessels, cloth of gold adorned her burgeoning figure. At the Tower of London, Henry greeted her with great pomp, and the royal couple spent the next two nights celebrating under its battlements. Unfortunately for Anne, during her progress through the city, the pageantry was marred by the official banners that lined the streets, emblazoning the entwined initials of the monarch and his new queen consort. Ha ha, they read, and the public loved the unintentional joke on Anne. But she made a beautiful picture, her chestnut hair cascading down her back in the manner of medieval queens and virgin brides. Her crimson brocaded gown was encrusted with precious stones, the pearls she wore about her neck larger than chickpeas. On June 1st, Whit Sunday, the six months pregnant Anne was crowned queen at Westminster Abbey, the folds of her gown cleverly concealing her condition. According to tradition, the king did not attend the coronation. The king greeting her afterward at Westminster asked how liked you the city sweetheart the new queen replied sir the city itself was well and now but i saw so many caps on heads and heard few tongues this jibes with chapui's assessment of the mood in the streets as he noted that it was so far from being jubilant that it was a funeral after that it was all downhill on july 11th pope clement issued a bull declaring void Archbishop Cramner's verdict on Henry's first marriage. His holiness demanded that Henry put Anne away, adding that any child of theirs would be deemed illegitimate. The Pope also excommunicated Henry, but by then the king was past caring. A Pope's will had no validity to the newly appointed head of the church in England. Yet, after Anne had endured so much and waited so long to realize her ambition, the royal honeymoon was short-lived. Henry was already experiencing buyer's remorse, and his little blue eyes had begun to stray. The heavily pregnant new queen, with her sharp tongue and shrewish temper, was not a pleasant companion, and of course Henry had to find outlets for gratifying his lust without endangering the health of the son he hoped she was carrying. Anne found herself unable to control or contain her jealousy over Henry's little infatuations and dalliances with her ladies-in-waiting. She may well have feared that one of Henry's flings might displace or worse, replace her. 
Coldness and grumbling characterized their arguments. When Anne complained about his infidelities using certain words that Henry disliked, he advised her to shut her eyes and endure as those who were her betters had done, reminding his new wife that he could lower her as much as he had raised her. Henry had confided to Francois I that he had to have a son for the quiet repose and tranquility of our realm. However, at 3 p.m. on September 7, 1533, Anne gave birth to a flame-haired daughter, who the monarchs named Elizabeth after both of their mothers. Henry could not conceal his displeasure at the birth of a girl, nor at the outset could Anne. After all those years of struggling and sacrifice, the risks Henry had taken to reform the religion, the lives that had been ruined so that Anne could become his queen, the best she could do was bear a girl. They both knew that she had failed, though Anne would in short order become so devoted to Elizabeth that she breastfed the baby herself, scandalizing the court. But Henry canceled the joust and the other celebrations that had been set to take place upon the birth of his son. He had been so sure Anne would give him a boy that the formal documents had been drawn up with the word prince on them. All that was lacking was the insertion of the heir's name and date of birth. Henry seethed as SS was added to every announcement. In March 1534, Pope Clement finally concluded that Henry's marriage to Catherine had indeed been valid, no surprise to anyone by then. He died that September, by which time Anne was several months pregnant again, her goodly belly a subject of discussion since April 27th. Henry was now 43 years old and Anne was in her mid-30s. To their mutual consternation, she miscarried. Anne was pregnant again by October 1535, though her condition did not deter Henry from paying a visit early in the month to the Seymour family at their home of Wolf Hall. There, Sir John Seymour had made certain that his demure and modest daughter, Jane, fell under the royal gaze as much as possible. It was not long before Henry gave Jane a miniature portrait of himself right <laughs> which he ostentatiously wore about her throat at court and was so infuriated by jane's imprudence that she ripped the chain from her neck at the end of september henry received the news that catherine lay dangerously ill but he refused to see her in her final days she wrote one last letter to the king averring her everlasting passion for him poignantly Ending with the words, Lastly, I make this vow that mine eyes desire you above all things. The letter was signed, Catherine the Queen. On January 7th, 1536, just days after her 50th birthday, the cancerous tumor on Catherine's heart claimed her life. On learning of the former queen's demise, Anne and Henry donned yellow garments, a color of rejoicing in England, but the traditional color of mourning in Spain. Catherine of Aragon was buried with modest pomp at Peterborough Cathedral. Not until the 20th century did her resting place receive the honors it deserved when Mary of Teck, the queen consort of George V, ordered the symbols of queenship to be displayed over Catherine's tomb. The two banners bearing the royal arms of England and Spain hang there still. Anne miscarried a male fetus said to be a 
about 15 weeks old on the day of Catherine's funeral, blaming it on two incidences that had caused her great anxiety. Catching her husband with Jane Seymour, who evidently wasn't particularly modest, on his lap and the jousting accident he suffered on the day of her miscarriage. Henry had lain unconscious for two hours, and naturally Anne feared for his life and for her own future, should the king die of his injuries. But Henry wasn't buying either reason. Utterly insensitive to Anne's grief at losing another baby, he lamented, I see God will not give me male children, leaving his fragile wife devastated and terrified of losing his love. Anne had good reason to despair, for Henry was already beginning to map out a more fertile pasture. In April, the king was very indiscreetly boasting to his ambassador in France that God might see fit to send us heirs male, averring, you do not know all my secrets. If Anne ever gave birth to a boy, her enemies knew her power over Henry would be nearly invincible. Timing was everything. She had to go, and sooner rather than later. After Anne's miscarriage in 1536, the anti-Boleyn and pro-Seymour factions at court collided, convening to de determine the best way of getting rid of Anne to make way for Jane. Thomas Cromwell, once Cardinal Wolsey's trusted secretary and now Henry's chief minister, made the point that there were international matters just as pressing as Henry's need for a son. France and Spain were now at war, and England stood to gain much from an alliance with Spain. But for obvious reasons, Henry's marriage to Anne was, stump was a stumbling block to any negotiations. Why would Spain's king, Charles V, aid the man who had dumped his sainted aunt for the French-bred hussy? It had therefore become not just biologically, but politically expedient for Henry to eliminate Anne. As the Seymours were moved into apartments at Greenwich and a pro-Seymour courtier was made a Knight of the Garter in preference to Anne's brother George, now Viscount Rochford, after the death of their father, Anne felt it all slipping away, everything she had clawed and scratched and waited for with her last fiber of patience. Her only crime was that she had failed to give Henry a son. On April 24, 1536, at Cromwell's prompting, the king signed a document appointing a committee to investigate Anne's possibly treasonous activities. It was not difficult to find people cheerfully willing to testify to Anne's innate lavishness. In fact, Anne's own uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, even as he reaped the benefits of her favor, called her La Grande Putain, the Great Whore. On April 30th, a court musician and dancer named Mark Smeaton was arrested on the grounds that he had committed adultery with the Queen. After being put to the rack, the hapless Smeaton confessed to the blatant lie. The following day, three men of Henry's privy chamber were arrested, also charged with having bedded Anne. It was a travesty of justice, for Henry knew these knights, Sir Francis Weston, Sir Henry Norris, and Sir William Brereton, too well to ever suspect them of treachery. The witch hunt was well underway. 
Hoping something would stick, Henry saw to it that Anne was charged with so many treasonous acts that it would have been impossible for the council not to have convicted her of at least one of them. Anne was even accused of sleeping with her own brother, a charge made by George's jealous wife, Lady Rochford, a lady of Anne's bedchamber. She thought her husband spent far too much time in his sister's company and therefore accused the bullying siblings of undue familiarity. Cromwell had been a tremendous supporter of Anne's during the great matter, but had jumped to a safer barge when he saw that hers was sinking. He became one of the prime architects of Anne's downfall and her bitterest enemy during her final days. Cromwell hoped that the charge of incest would suitably shock and appall the council with its titillating allegations of Anne's alluring George with her tongue in his mouth and his tongue in hers. The anti-Boleyn machine banked on the assumption that people who swallowed that story would believe anything. This was the grotesque version of Anne Boleyn they wished to perpetrate and disseminate. The goggle-eyed whore with the gross cyst on her neck, moles all over her body, six fingers on one hand, and three breasts. But if people didn't believe that Anne and George were lovers, they might credit some of the other allegations that she had conspired to kill the king, Queen Catherine, the Lady Mary, and Henry's illegitimate son by Bessie Blount, Henry Fitzroy. Many times Anne had, in fact, angrily urged Henry to execute his first wife and their daughter for treason, but he had never entertained her suggestion. The indictment against Anne stated that she, following daily her frail and carnal lust, did falsely and traitorously procure by base conversations and kisses, touchings, gifts, and other infamous incitations, divers of the king's daily and familiar servants to be her adulterers and concubines. Anne was arrested on May 2, 1536, on the charges of adultery, incest, and conspiracy to kill the king. During her imprisonment in the tower, Anne's every word and movement were jotted down by the wardresses who had been entrusted with watching her in the hopes that the queen might say something to implicate herself and give Henry legitimate proof of her infidelity or other treasonous act. Throughout her confinement, she suffered violent mood swings, varying wildly from laughter to remorse to boastfulness to tears. And because Henry refused to see her, on May 6, 1536, Anne wrote him a letter in which she begged him to not dishonor their daughter, Elizabeth, and assert her loyalty and innocence. Quote, Let me receive an open trial, for my truth shall fear no one open shames then shall you see either mine innocence cleared your suspicions and conscience satisfied the enemy and slander of the world stopped or my guilt openly declared so that your grace may be at liberty both before god and man not only to execute worthy punishment on me as an unfaithful wife but to follow your affection already settled on that party mistress seymour but if you have already determined that not only my death but an infamous slander must bring you to the joy of your desired happiness then i desire of god that he will pardon your great sin herein end quote i do want to stop and mention that this letter supposedly written in the tower by Anne on May 6, 1536, is highly disputed. No one actually knows 
as she wrote that it appeared much much later like a hundred years later um in the reign of her daughter uh so there's just absolutely no way for anybody to know if she wrote it Anne's trial began on May 15th in the Great Hall of the Tower of London. Her brother was to be judged by the same council of peers. 2,000 spectators watched the circus from purpose-built stands. The Duke of Norfolk presided over the proceedings as high steward, while Anne's former sweetheart, Henry Percy, now the Earl of Northumberland, was impelled by his rank to sit on the peer council, but Percy was dying in the exigencies of his illness did not permit him to remain for the verdict. Possibly he was unable to witness the sham trial of the woman he had once adored. According to the Herald, Charles Worthesy, Anne gave wise and discreet answers to her examiners, concealing her terror beneath a calm and regal demeanor. How much hope did she hold out for an acquittal? A princess of Spain had been powerless to fight Henry's vast machine, dared the descent of a lowly mercer however much her family had risen over the past half century expect to triumph where those of royal blood had failed no one believed the charge of incest and george berlin spoke so persuasively that an acquittal looked imminent however a note penned in french was read in open court its contents attributed to george according to the note based upon a conversation with anne the king was incapable of copulating with his wife and he had neither skill nor virility or potency even though anne had who had remained sexually faithful to henry had become pregnant four times in three years by maligning the king's mojo in open court george had sealed his death warrant all four men accused of adultery with the queen were found guilty and sentenced to a traitor's death beheading followed by castration disembowelment and quartering however in a fit of generosity henry commuted the sentence to a simple beheading probably because he knew that the men were innocent sacrificial lambs in the campaign to get rid of anne at the trials of the two peers anne and george their uncle Norfolk read the sentence. The queen and her brother were to be burned at the stake or executed according to the king's pleasure. Two days after the verdict, George Boleyn, Mark Smeaton, and the men of the privy chamber were beheaded on Tower Hill. But Henry allowed the corpses their dignity. The heads were not displayed on Tower Bridge, which was the customary punishment for dead traitors. Anne grew hourly more fearful that her turn would come at any moment. But before she was executed, Anne suffered another ignominy. She was stripped of her title as queen, and her marriage, after all the struggles to achieve it, was declared invalid. The degree of nullity was dated May 17th, though it was not signed until June 10th, and it would be another two weeks before both houses of Parliament subscribed to it. Henry had gotten his marriage to Anne annulled on the grounds that his affair with, his, with her sister Mary had placed them within the first degree of affinity, even though in 1528, at Henry's urging, the Pope had issued a special dispensation that set aside the subject of Henry's affinity to Anne based on his romantic history with Mary Boleyn. Now this is the part that's always gotten me. This nullity was not signed until June 10th, 1536. 
and Anne Boleyn was beheaded on May 19th. That means she died a queen, you know, I don't know. I just, I just don't get it. And also, if your marriage is declared invalid, how could you have possibly committed adultery and you need to die because you committed adultery? Like, you know what I mean? Doesn't make sense. But Henry had cleverly inserted into the 1534 Act of Supremacy that any existing Palpal dispensations would no longer be considered valid if they were contrary to Holy Scripture and the law of God. This phraseology was relied upon to justify the invalidity of Henry's marriage to Anne as incestuous. Their daughter, Elizabeth, not yet three years old, was made a bastard by it. On May 18th, Anne made a full confession to Cramner, though she went to the block maintaining her love for Henry and her innocence of the crimes for which she had been convicted. I want to put another note here. Um, at this time in history, when people did their, you know, their last rites before they were to die, um you could pretty much assume that what they were saying was true because they were about to meet their maker. Um, they were not going to lie on oath. So I absolutely believe in her innocence based, based on that alone. I mean, many other reasons, but yeah. As a final gesture of kindness to the woman he once called his fresh young damsel henry had spent 24 pounds roughly equivalent of 14,400 in today's currency to hire the executioner from saint omer and calais this agent of death wielded a sword rather than an axe ensuring a swifter and less painful demise in a letter to thomas cromwell on may 19th 1536, the day of Anne's execution, Sir William Kingston, constable of the tower, recorded his conversation with Anne when she heard the news. This morning she sent for me, and at my coming she said, Mr. Kingston, I hear I shall not die before noon, and I am very sorry, therefore, for I thought to be dead by this time and past my pain. I told her it should be no pain. It was so little. And then she said, I heard say the executioner was very good and I have a little neck. And then she put her hands about it, laughing heartily. I have seen many men and also women executed and that they have been in great sorrow. And to my knowledge, this lady has much joy in death. The time of the execution had been kept a secret so there wouldn't be a tremendous crowd to witness her demise. The customary hour was drawn, but as noon approached, Anne grew increasingly anxious, eager to finally be put out of her misery. She had no idea that the delay was caused by the headman's being detained on the Dover Road. Because her executioner was stuck in traffic, Anne's death had been postponed for a few hours pending his arrival. Though she was to die as the Marquess of Pembroke, Anne looked every inch a queen as she walked to the block on Tower Hill, wearing a red petticoat under a loose, dark gray gown of damask trimmed in fur. A mantle of ermine 
enveloped her slender shoulders. Her long chestnut hair was bound up under a simple white linen coif over which she wore a gabled headdress in the English style rather than one of the French half-moon caps she had introduced to Henry's court 15 years earlier. Witnesses described Anne's steps as light, almost blithe, Perhaps she was relieved to be released from her mental torment, knowing there was nothing left for her in the temporal world. With all the build-up to Anne's deonment, no one bothered to be sure that there was a coffin to receive her remains. Anne's body and head were placed into an arrow chest that was close at hand and buried in an unmarked grave in the chapel of St. Peter at Vincula, adjoining the Tower of Green. Her skeleton was one of those identified in renovations of the chapel during the reign of Queen Victoria, so Anne's final resting place is now marked on the marble floor. After the most famously protracted courtship in the world, Anne Boleyn had been queen for only a thousand days. She was not an easy person to like. Many times Anne seemed like the pushy power behind the throne when Henry was reluctant to pursue a thing to its conclusion. Yet Anne was, a cap was capable of being generous and compassionate as she was angry, vicious, and spiteful. She annually gave away 1,500 pounds to the poor, over $1 million in today's economy. But the average Renaissance Briton, perhaps even the recipients of her charitable largesse, remember her instead as the trophy wiped from hell who had seduced their sovereign and made him cast aside their beloved queen as a result of her royal affair anne boleyn's legacy is enormous by encouraging henry to break with rome and adopt some of the teachings of luther and of renaissance humanist theologians she was arguably one of the most influential persons on the development of the Christian religion in Western Europe. Anne was innocent of the charges for which she forfeited her head, but neither her bloodline nor her spirit perished on Tower Hill, for she left behind a daughter. Henry restored Elizabeth's legitimate birthright three years before his death in the Succession Act of 1544. The red-headed princess would become England's most venerated queen and perhaps the greatest female monarch the world has ever known, Queen Elizabeth I. And that, my friends, is Anne Boleyn's vindication. Thanks for joining me. See you next time. Or listen to me next time. <laughs>